Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Experts Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, along with my co-host, David Blackman, editor of Shell Magazine. And today, we're going to have a great show for you. We're being joined by Brett Bennett, who is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's going to discuss all the great things that are happening and break down what's happening at the Texas legislators since they're getting ready to close the session. It's a show you don't want to miss. But first, I want to tell you about Shell Magazine's latest issue. It's out. And the cover is an excellent midstream company. It's Moda Midstream. They're one of the largest in North America, a great company, three CEOs, and it is packed with a lot of great information on Moda, its company, and its projections for the future. Definitely an article you don't want to miss. For more information, you should go to Shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G, and sign up for their free digital issue on their newsletter. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming mixer that we have right here in San Antonio, Texas. It's going to be at the beautiful Fogo de Chao on the Riverwalk on June 24th. Again, that is an all-stream mixer. If you want to network, bring plenty of business cards, come and join us on June 24th. The Fogo de Chao on the San Antonio Riverwalk. Meet some great people, uh, grow your business, and we'll have some great door prizes too. For more information on that, you're welcome to go to shellmag.com or you can visit txenergyadvocates.org. Again, that's txenergyadvocates.org and get your tickets now because it will be a sold out event. And now it is time to welcome on my co-host and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It is, and I'm really excited to uh, bring on uh, our guest. Of course, we have to get through a few questions before we do, but I'm excited about bringing on uh, Brent Bennett with the Texas Public Policy Foundation because they've been on before and they're working on a lot of stuff pertaining to this upcoming legislative session. So I'm looking forward to that. But first, me too. let me bring on uh, the big bump in oil prices that we had earlier this week. And I know that OPEC Plus had agreed to hold the line and not increasing. Uh, so they're going to continue that all the way through 2021. But it seems like there's a lot of discussion going on. There were other things too. What's helping bring up the prices and prop up the prices? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of you know the same story. Twenty fifth verse for this year. It's uh, we have uh, recovering global demand from you know uh, the end of our global pandemic uh, with COVID nineteen that that so depressed all demand around the world that that's all coming back now much more rapidly than all the quote experts had expected. Um, just this week, in fact, the International Energy Agency, which barely a month ago had said it didn't anticipate global demand to come all the way back to 2019 levels until 2023, had to backtrack on that and is now saying, oh gosh, we were wrong about that. Uh, global demand for oil will be at 2019 levels by late 2021. That's how fast it's coming back. And it shouldn't surprise anyone, uh, despite all of this 
media hype about climate change and how we're going to transition to electric vehicles, uh, that's all a very gradual, slow process. It's not going to happen overnight and people still need oil. So uh, that's the big part of it. And the return in demand has caused lower inventories of crude oil in the United States this past week. And that has a, an impact on, on oil prices and caused them to rise and, you know, get to over $68 early in the week for the first time in more than two years. So. Well, let me ask you, we're at 68, but also in one of our energy minutes, we also discussed Goldman Sachs saying that yeah. we could actually hit over $80 a barrel. Yeah, here. They're, they're predicting we'll be over 80 by late summer. Um, I suspect they're right, frankly, uh, we'll be certainly close to that. And uh, it's, you know, there's no real end in sight, as long as the OPEC plus agreement holds together, as you mentioned uh, earlier. And I think there have been some lessons learned from the whole Shell North America play and OPEC plus and how they work together. And no one, no one wanted prices to go below a negative. No. Like, <laughs> I think lessons were learned, but here we go with so let's talk about okay it's summertime people want to go driving we have oil prices they're going to be higher but it what is triggering that too is it the crude price that if it goes over 80 how much more will that be why is it going to affect their summer drive why yeah. are these going to go higher at the, the pump at you know, the pump yes uh right uh, so you know gasoline prices as we've talked about before tend to follow oil prices up and down. Okay. And uh, this year's no exception to that. So the higher the oil price goes, the higher the prices at the pump are going to go. Uh, a part of this too that I think we need to remember is inflation, just generally inflation. That's going up under this administration. It, it certainly is. And that's because this administration is intentionally weakening the dollar internationally. The value of the dollar is going down compared to other currencies. That, that results in inflation here in the United States. And it takes more of those deflated dollars uh, to buy a, gal a, a barrel of oil. So that also causes upward pressure on oil prices and gasoline prices. And that's uh, who we supposedly voted for uh, last November. Uh, I think, you know, I tried and you tried to warn everyone what was coming and uh, the majority of Americans didn't listen. And uh, so here we are. No one should be surprised about any of this. Well, I want to switch gears because um, I was reading uh, yesterday, our governor, Governor Abbott here in Texas was discussing how uh, the they were trying to pass legislation to strengthen the <sighs> electoral process. And uh, we had a group, which were the Democrats, walk out. And that was a pretty interesting uh, <laughs> a pretty interesting response from Governor Abbott. We're going to hit them in their pocketbook. <laughs> right, right. You know, withhold their pay if they're not going to go to work. Um, that right. was quite a stunt that the Democrats have pulled several times in the past. And you got to uh, wonder why, why somebody doesn't want to really strengthen election integrity. And I mean, we're supposed to talk about the, the power grid, and I want to switch to that too. But I want to make a point that it is very strange to me that anyone living in the United States is not wanting to strengthen our election laws and making sure that they are solid to where, you know, what was the discussion between President Trump and Biden that was stolen an election? Well, let's just get away from that and let's just strengthen what we should be doing so that way we never have this problem again or even the thought of it. I'm not saying it was stolen or not. I have my own preference, but I'm saying 
we should be doing that. Um, I want to switch gears because we're closing on the Texas uh, session as it is, and policymakers were tasked to do one thing, <laughs> other things, fix the power grid. Since right. what we uh, went through in uh, no in uh, February with Snowgate, tell me, did they do anything to help make the grid more reliable? Do you think? No, um, no, they shame they on you, legislators, shame on you. They did some things, some window dressing by and large, and some authorizing the PUC to write some regulations starting this October. And maybe the PUC will do that and maybe they won't. Um, but they did not really directly address the two big issues with the grid. Uh, the first being requirement, requirement uh, of weatherization by, uh, by the power generators, both natural gas, coal, nuclear, and renewables, which completely failed during the crisis. There's no statutory requirement that any of that happen. They authorized the PUC to study and write regulations, maybe perhaps hopefully mandating it, but that process won't even begin until October. So we're gonna go through this summer uh, and have no protection at all and probably next winter and have no protection at all from the same kind of, of severe weather events. The other thing they did not address at all in any way, shape or form, and make no mistake about this, despite what they may be telling you folks, they did not do this. They did not mandate the building of any new capacity on the grid, okay? The other big problem was ERCOT doesn't have enough reserve baseload generating capacity to rely on during a severe weather event. We saw them put out emergency warnings in April for crying out loud. The mildest weather day, weather uh, month of the entire year, they, they had two days where they almost didn't have enough capacity to meet demand. This is a problem. It's a chronic issue on the grid that everyone's known about for more than a decade and done nothing to fix. And sadly, this legislature, again, did nothing to fix it. Hopefully, Who's Governor Abbott will call a special session. Uh, everyone should pressure him to do that. Right. And I, and I was going to ask you about that because we know we have redistricting. So what I'm hearing in my feelers is we definitely will have a special session because that was not covered or we have to, they have to cover that. And they're trying to potentially roll this in. Do you think that will happen? If I guess you're saying, let's put pressure on our elected officials and Governor Abbott to get this fixed because the last time uh, there were a lot of Texans that passed unnecessarily because they didn't have access to basic heat. And this should Tell us something about what we do on this show is talk about, you take away oil and gas, you don't like Snowgate, here you go. Like this, right. this is what happens. Right, it is. And it, so on a special session, there is discussions underway right now among the Republican leadership in Austin to perhaps have a special session in October to try to actually do something real to address all of this. Um, but that's not baked into the cake. We don't know. It will not be, my understanding right now is it won't be part of the special session to address the voting law, for example. That's going to come earlier uh, in the summer. But uh, hopefully there will be a special session at some point to force the legislature to really do its job on this because they haven't done it to this point. Right. And people's lives are at stake. Gee, let me just break that's that. That's right. Nine people Absolutely back. right. And of course, we all remember being in our vehicles just to warm up. We didn't think that would happen in the 21st century, but it did. 
Well, David, that is all the time we have for this segment. And when we return from break, we will be joined by Brent Bennett, who is with Texas Public Policy Foundation. You're listening to and the World Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C., and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. And now, David, it is time for us to welcome on our guest, Brent Bennett, who is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. This is not your first time of being on the show, Brent, but I would like to give our listeners an opportunity before we delve into the topic of social cost of carbon, which is a topic that a lot of people are hearing buzzwords like net zero and and other things, but carbon is going to go away, fossil fuels is going to go away. Uh, and we want to get into that today, but before we do, I'd like to give our listeners an opportunity to understand, you know, what you do at the Public Policy Foundation and a little bit about Texas Public Policy Foundation. Yeah, thank you, Kim, and uh, glad to be here. The uh, TPPF is the uh, largest conservative think tank in the state and, and uh, one of the largest in the country outside of D.C. We, uh, we've been around for about 30 years, focused on a wide range of policy issues, um, the energy policy initiative here, Life Powered, we, we started about five years ago. Um, I've, I've personally been uh, with the team for about three years, as have our, most of our current team members. And uh, we are we exist to raise America's energy IQ. So we do work both here in Texas uh, and also around the country, uh, particularly uh, building multi-state coalitions on different policy initiatives. Uh, so of course, the last three months, four months, we've been deeply involved in the Texas legislative session. but. As we roll out of that now, we're going to be looking at a lot of other state and federal issues, the social cost of carbon being a, a big one at the federal level. The topic that we, we wanted to talk about was you all had released uh, an article and it was discussing you guys are involved in this whole engineered uh, term, if you will, uh, social cost of carbon. And you hear a lot of carbon capture, net zero. David, you might want to jump in here because those are some of my buzzwords. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, this social cost of carbon thing is uh, kind of what I call a rubric uh, that the federal government invented, uh, I don't know, I think it was actually during the second Bush administration, mm -hmm. uh, in which every regulation they write and permit they issue, uh, there is this calculation, quote, calculation performed that estimates what emissions are going to occur from, from the issuance of the permit and what the cost socially is from those carbon emissions is have i kind of captured that correctly yeah at least every regulation in that involves some level of, of co2 emissions right anything right. you're trying to regulate carbon dioxide they've also done it for methane nitrous oxide other greenhouse gases yeah mm -hmm. and when they calculate this social cost quote cost of carbon do they also 
try to calculate the uh, benefits uh, from from the use of or the 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 use of whatever fossil fuels or or whatever is causing the carbon emissions. I mean, when you look at oil and gas, we our modern world couldn't exist had we not begun using oil and natural gas uh, to drive our our economy here in the United States and and then subsequently all over the world. I mean, do, is there any effort to capture the social benefit of carbon at the same time? Yeah, it's it, it's kind of funny how these things work. The, the the way they do it in these regulatory analyses is you look at the the cost of the regulation, right? Which is the cost of changing from you know in this case in the, uh, reducing those emissions, right? Versus the the supposed benefit that comes from reducing the cost of carbon, right? Yeah. So you do this cost benefit analysis, but it's really it's really contrived. Um, like you said, it's it's. It's they they have a they have models that project how the cost of carbon is going to be in way into the future, right? And they try and discount those back to the present, and then which is a very we can get into it if you want. It's a very complex process, but then uh, they, yeah. they try <laughs> and balance that. Try to get in the weeds. Yeah, the they they balance that against what supposedly what they think are going to be the cost of reducing those emissions, right? Yeah, and they and it doesn't really factor into. Like you said, what are the benefits from the energy that's there, right? There's a, there's a, a huge amount of indirect benefit that we gain from from the energy that we use, and having affordable energy. Uh, right. And it's just it's, it's 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 as if there's this idea that somehow you can just reduce the you reduce the emissions and there's a substitute, and that there's you're not you know you're not taking into account all of those those other benefits. So it, it's really a, it's it's a regulatory tool that's become very contrived over the years. And uh, it's something that uh, is, is basically just used as, a, as an indirect carbon tax, right? You're just saying, well, we're going to tax these emissions throughout, you know, every regulatory process, right? We're going to discount, uh, we're going to count the, these emissions as a cost so that right. it makes these regulations look better, right, than they actually are. <laughs> right. Exactly. A quick question, a little off script, though, but so to try to put this in context for, for someone who doesn't quite understand all this, for us, it's, it's we understand the topic, but is there any other alternative? Like some people might be saying right now, well, that's why we should push wind and solar because they're so much cleaner and greener, or, or you know something else. But none of any of these things uh, truly are also perfect in the sense that they're also not contributing as well. So, so talk to us a little bit about. You know, why do you think that they're just consistently focusing on oil and gas, trying to change the perception that the other uh, wind and solar farms we've seen popping up, especially all over Texas, that that's the solution and, and, and is it the solution? Well, yeah, and another fallacy of social cost of carbon is that you're only talking about air emissions, right? You're not talking about uh, land and water pollution, right? And other things right. that go into you know, whatever, whatever it is that takes to manufacture your, your energy production, right? Um, you know, you're purely looking at when you're, when you're dealing with in the regulatory process, when you deal with an air emissions regulation, all you're looking at is air emissions, right? right? But wind farms reduce, also release these as well, not to mention they kill a whole lot of birds and bats and insects, right? Right. So there's, so, I mean, there, there are other costs involved in, in switching energy sources, right? And that's not typically something that um, that the EPA has done in the past, right? Whenever you reduce emissions, say from a vehicle, you're you're talking about okay, we're going to put a, a device, a catalytic converter, on the car. When you're talking about reducing particulate emissions from a coal plant, you're going to put you know you're going to have devices that filter out the the soot from the coal plant, right? 
well, the only way to really to now there are, there are carbon capture methods being developed, but really the only way to eliminate um, carbon emissions is to get rid of you know the emissions source and switch to wind and solar, right? So you're getting rid of a coal or a gas plant switching to wind and solar. That's what the clean power plan was trying to do several right. years ago, and and the Supreme Court, uh, while it has not struck down that idea, has been has been um, uh, very they they well, they denied the clean power. Plan struck it down they, they're still trying to they haven't gotten to the source of the problem which is this idea that somehow we can we can through regulation get uh get us to switch from uh you know fossil fuels to wind and solar yeah right. you're listening to the all patch radio show we'll be right back Hi folks, Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Brent Bennett, who is with Texas Public Policy Foundation. And Brent, before the break, we were talking about the term social cost of carbon. You guys released an article. You guys are definitely involved in this topic. David asked earlier, you know, is our government also taking and accounting the benefit that we receive by reducing carbon? and all this carbon capture to focus more on alternatives, renewables, green energy, the solar, the wind. And I wanna try to help uh, our listeners understand what is the government trying to do when they're talking about, you know, removing carbon and and removing greenhouse gases. On the surface, it sounds like it's a great thing, but do you agree with that it's a great thing for Americans and for consumers to be buying into this carbon capture and let's reduce uh, the fossil fuel footprint, if you will. Well, I mean, it can be good if you if you also can keep energy affordable, right? That's the problem. And and we're the government is again the social cost of carbon is part of this effort to try and make fossil fuels look more expensive than they actually right. are, right? And then engineer us towards their favorite energy sources, namely wind and solar, right? So if if wind and solar really were something that could power our entire economy were cheaper, okay, great. We would, you know, we would move towards that and there would be all kinds of different benefits from it, right? So the, but the fact that the government is trying to engineer us that way and make it look more affordable than it is uh, is really where the problem is. And you see that in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of the subsidies that go towards those energy sources, in terms of the, you know, the implicit higher energy costs. We see in tech that we, we could go exactly. through Texas how those energy sources are raising the cost of our electricity, especially after February, right? And so that's, you know, those are, there's all kinds of implicit costs that are being incurred by that tra- attempted transition in that social engineering, right? Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's really something we need to really emphasize in this in- interview, what Brent just said. And, and this is all a conscious effort, a, a plan, a strategy by the green movement in, in conjunction with these bureaucrats in the federal government to 
make carbon using energy like like oil, gas and coal more expensive so that wind and solar which are already more expensive can become artificially more competitive in the marketplace and in that way they can say well you know gee co uh, wind and solar is just as cheap as natural gas and power generation well that's mm -hmm. not really true but uh, unless the the government engages in this social engineering process to to try to make fossil fuels more expensive correct mm -hmm. yeah that's right i mean yeah. and, and, and in a lot of cases it might be cheaper to generate energy with wind and solar but it's not cheaper to transport and store it and so the final cost of the consumer is never cheaper right um and and that's another way that we try to you know engineer things and obscure the cost is by not counting a lot of these costs and so and that's that's a huge problem that is we're trying to address, especially in the regulatory process, but also in the public conversation. Well, I think that there's a lot of people who listen to talk radio who really don't quite believe most of the time that the government is doing what's in the best interest of the people all the time. And this might be one of those areas where it is designed by what we talked about a few minutes ago earlier to allow solar and wind to compete on a level when they're not giving any subsidies to oil and gas or coal. It's strictly these types of uh, utilities that uh, or energy sources that they need a prop up and that's how basically they're able to compete but yet we see them coming up all over the state of texas they're they're they're, they're all over south texas i'm talking about the wind turbines i think san antonio has one of the largest solar panel farms uh what david in the nation right and then mm -hmm. um, we certainly see the biggest one in the state yeah in the yeah. state and then uh, out in Midland too in, in Odessa area and I guess what I wanted to try to do before we go to break is kind of set that up because we're going to get into the government a little bit more in depth in the next segment about you know what are they doing here and why but it really is important for us to understand that these two you know we saw it in the in the snowstorm that we had here in Texas that they didn't perform wind and solar because they didn't have what they needed to perform. And then, you know, what we're covering today is the cost of how they're not so cost efficient compared to good old oil and gas and even possibly coal. And they are in some ways reducing air emissions as well on their own, especially the oil and gas industry for natural gas. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to get back on the topic of social cost of carbon and how uh, and where our government is leaning towards in this area. You're listening to an Oil Pet Radio show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210 2407188 again 2102407188 and we're back you're listening to and the oil patch radio show our guest today is Brent Bennett with the uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation and our discussion today is the social cost of carbon 
an article, Brent, that you guys created and pushed out on social media. I saw the article and I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about it. So we, we talk about social cost carbon and, you know, we've gone into a lot of the weeds on it. Didn't the Trump administration de-emphasize the use of this uh, over the past four years? And of course, now, I guess the Biden administration is bringing it back into vogue. Yeah, and the Trump administration did some things to make the cost smaller. The problem was they didn't really go into why it's why it's a bad tool to begin with. Um, they just kind of, all they did was just change the numbers so that it was a lot right. smaller and it was basically rendered ineffective, right? right? And that's the problem with it is that it's so fungible. There's so many easy ways that you can change it uh, just, just by adjusting different assumptions in the models, right? And it's, it's, it's just not a very good regulatory tool. And that's why there's a group in that article that we wrote was based on an amicus brief that we contributed yes. to a lawsuit. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, there's a lawsuit going on. There's actually two um, lawsuits going on against the, the Biden administration from different coalitions of states. Uh, one, is, one is with uh, Missouri in the lead and one is uh, Louisiana in the lead. The Texas has joined Louisiana lawsuit. Um, and so that they're basically suing the Biden administration saying that the social cost of carbon is an arbitrary and capricious uh, regulatory tool and is basically, uh, I think, I can't remember the exact legal term, but it's basically in, in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act and other things, um, you know, that other regulatory rules and laws, right? Right, and, and that's really because there's no real science behind it. I mean, in, if you yeah. can just change willy-nilly without providing any scientific basis for just changing the assumptions in the equation yeah. from administration to administration, how can, how can we ever contend that that's based on actual data and science? I mean, you really can't, can you? Right, I mean, it's, it's science, but it's very fungible science and it's just not a good predictive tool. when you when science. It's not robust <laughs> yeah. at all. It's like Mystery Science Theater it's, 2000 it's, or something. It's, yeah, so it's... <laughs> And so you guys are involved, uh, TPPF, involved in the Missouri challenge with the Biden administration mm -hmm. um, and their use of these this oddly one-sided calculation. What what are y'all involved in and why? And also, more importantly, please tell us this challenge, how important it is um, to keep challenging it, because like we've talked about a minute ago, if the Trump administration can change it, they can change it. Where is the science based off of? It seems it seems really uh, dangerous to be doing these kind of things. You just push out a number and it's a new administration. It kind of sounds like the way they operate in other countries, third world countries. Yeah, really, it, it really does um, create an arbitrary, really uh, arbitrary expansion of government power, right? And what it's doing is it's being used to justify regulations on CO2 emissions, right? Through the Clean Air Act, right? And it's when Congress is not explicitly, you know, created a program for reducing CO2 emissions, right? Um, and, and so it's just, it's trying to basically justify these regulations in a way that they were not meant to be justified. Uh, and so that's how the clean power plan was, was came about. That's how the methane rule uh, came about, right? The, the, the social cost of carbon and methane underlies these rules and make and justifies them. Right. right. And it, and it kind that's, of so a, that's why a we have to get rid of it. Because <laughs> it's is it kind not... of trying to to implement the Green New Deal through regulation. Yeah, I mean, in, in a certain sense, I mean, obviously, the Green New Deal is far more extreme, but these right. are baby steps towards that. Right. You have to get mm -hmm. make take these steps to get there, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you have to again. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to make the Green New Deal seem possible, you have to make fossil fuels seem very expensive. 
Right. And I don't want it to be where we're anti, you know, we're environmentalists too, David, I, Brent too. We care about the planet. We have to live on it too. It's just more of what's making sense and what's not making sense of Mm -hmm. bills, legislation that is being passed. And what I feel is, you know, we saw it with the coal industry got demonized so bad and they weren't uh, very good about setting the story straight and public policy and Mm-hmm. That there, there are things that they can do to capture um, and, and get uh, cleaner and greener. And yet that was never discussed. And we look and a lot of people are out of jobs. And, and, and perception wise, if you talk about coal, it's just people just visualize a dirty thing. Yeah. And oil and gas couldn't be further from that. I mean, we're talking about a lot of jobs, a lot of highly uh, intelligent and well-educated people are in the oil and gas sector. It's not a dirty industry by by any stretch. Well, there is no clean and dirty energy, first of all, right? Exactly. Are, yeah, and, that, and that's why we have to bring some more balance to the conversation, right? There, there aren't these extremes, right? There's, there's, there's different impact. Every energy source has different impacts, and you have to look at the full impact, right? I mean, coal for especially for developing countries is a heck of a lot better than burning trees, you know. <laughs> Which is and, what they're, you know, the environmentalists want them to do, right? Well, to a certain extent. Yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, it's, it's particularly in developed nations, more than even nations. So it's nations. yeah. So so coal is not a bad energy source. It's an excellent energy source, uh, especially when you use pollution control equipment to clean it up, right? right. Now, yeah. And so you have to pay to you know reduce those environmental problems, but you have to look that look at that in its full balance, right? Compared to what your alternatives are and what the cost of those alternatives are. And I think there's other countries that just really lack just basic infrastructure to be able to do what we do here in the United States. And so therefore, yeah, no they're, doubt. they're slim, but you know, the, the cost is if they don't have access to reliable and expensive energy, you know, people's lives are in jeopardy and, and, and it's, it's not their fault that they are indigent or poor as a country. And yet they, if they lack that, they lack energy, they lack clean water sources. Um, and they also lack medication and vaccines for their children. Um, so there's a lot to think about. Before we go to break, do you expect a decision on the case? Um, and what are the next steps once you get that decision or once it's been decided? What do you think? Yeah, it, it's going to take a long time because the, the lawsuits are just starting. So it'll yeah. take probably a couple of years. Um, you have to go through appeals. Uh, I think the goal ultimately would be to uh, to get a higher level appeals of court or even the Supreme Court uh, to make a decision on this matter. You know, there's also There's also the ongoing litigation against um, the very the, the clean power plan and also the replacement for it, which is the affordable clean energy rule that the Trump administration promulgated, right? So that's a concurrent litigation that might make its way to the Supreme Court actually quite soon. It could be next year uh, if they if they grant it. So yeah, this will be an ongoing saga throughout the entire Biden administration, kind of underlying their push towards you know more of these regulations, right? This is how you push back. Well, when we get back from break, I mean, first of all, let me say I'm glad that y'all are following it because somebody needs to keep this administration in check. When we come back from break, I do want to talk about the Biden administration and their role. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kim Bilotto, wanting to talk to you about how to age gracefully. As a woman, my appearance is important to me. It makes me feel good about myself when I feel I'm taking care of myself. And I have been visiting a woman for many years who has helped me with my wrinkles, my skin's elasticity. And you know, a lot of people think it's really just involving women, but it's not. Many, many men also seek treatments as they see the aging process occurring. I visit Cynthia, my friend of many years, who is a master injector for San Antonio Cosmetic Surgery. I feel very comfortable 
comfortable going to her and allowing her to just do her work on me. Pick up the phone, call Cynthia, make an appointment and see what she can do for you because it has taken years off of me. So if you want a free consultation with Cynthia, give them a call at 210-641-4320. Again, the number is 210-614-4320. Or you can visit their website at sanantoniocosmeticsurgery.net. Be sure to tell them that Kim within the Oil Patch Radio Show sent you. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Brent Bennett with TPPF, better known as Texas Public Policy Foundation. And we're going to discuss what's happening at our Texas in Texas here with our legislators and, of course, uh, the oil and gas policies that are coming out of there. So we did just finish a, a session of the Texas legislature, and uh, I know there was a lot of stuff you guys got involved in during that. I know one of the big things was this uh, Section 313 property tax issue. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about that, what the issue is and uh, why it's probably a good thing that that's going away uh, at the end of the legislative session. Yeah, so uh, chapter 313 of the tax code was- Chapter 313, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine, same thing. Um, Was created, uh, it was created about 20 years ago uh, as a way to give companies property tax breaks for locating in Texas, right? So it's trying to design as an economic, economic development tool. Yeah. Um, but the, the program has, from the beginning, been very problematic because it's really not bringing in a new business to Texas. Uh, it's really just giving property tax breaks to businesses that are already here. Or in the case of uh, the tax breaks that wind and solar companies are getting, just basically shifting energy production from one part of the state to another, right? right. Paying for this. Um, it's, it's 90 plus percent of the uh, tax breaks go to energy companies that are basically already going to locate here anyways. Um, so it's been, you know, so instead of, and so it's going to cost us uh, over the next few years until the program expires uh, over a billion dollars a year. Uh, and that could be going towards broad-based property tax relief. And instead it's going yes. towards, you know, these very specific tax breaks for certain favored corporations that know how to work this program. Right. I mean, it's, and it's meant that, that uh, homeowners like three of us and, and millions of other Texans, yeah. we're paying higher property taxes to subsidize these big corporations and these wind farms out in West Texas and, you know, all these other things. And it just doesn't really, from an economic standpoint, any good. Yeah. We, we need, we need, you know, real economic development that brings companies here. And and the best form of that is low taxes across the board, which has been our proven model. Um, So, so fortunately we've been able uh, through a really broad coalition, both conservatives and uh, progressives, in Texas have come together on this issue and said, no, this is enough. And we actually killed both the 10-year extension of the program and the two-year extension. So now it's set to expire next year. Uh, and they're going to have to create something entirely new the next legislative session. Uh, so that's been a really positive development, uh, one that we're really proud of. Um, we didn't think that we would get nearly this far. We were just hoping for the two-year that we could have another chance to, to fight it. But right. But the legislature, uh, credit to our legislators, they stood up to the lobbyists and said, "No, we're we're done with this. We're gonna we're gonna scrap this and start some start fresh with something better next session." Um, well, so. Uh, so let's let's talk about you know I think one of the f- big famous companies that that recently relocated at least part of its operations to Texas, multiple parts of it, is Tesla. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure. T- I wanted to ask that. Good 
question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I didn't no, no. I'm saying I'm glad you remember to bring that in there because it, yeah. I would like to know that too. What kind of tax break did, did they get to leave California mm. to come here? And even more to the point, is there any evidence that Elon Musk would not have moved those business units to Texas if he didn't have Section 3 or Chapter 313? I think yeah. people need I mean, to understand that that wasn't really the motivating factor behind Musk's decision. Right. And, and I mean, he, you know, and that's, and that's the type of manufacturing facility that the program was originally designed to do, right? Like that 90 plus percent right. of what it goes towards is not that, but even that is problematic because like you said, he, you know, there's a lot of other reasons that he came here, talented <laughs> workforce, no income tax, right. And, and, you know, low regulations, right. And right. they, uh, you know, they were pretending that they were going to go to Oklahoma. They had another possibility of going to Oklahoma. Yeah. But really, once they got that tax break, they broke ground immediately within days. You know, that's here in Austin. So I, I live nearby there. I, I, I see, I drive by the plant on a regular basis. And yeah, you know, that, and so it's, it's again, it's just like what brought them here was low taxes, low regulations. It was not these special tax breaks. Right. And I mean, when you compare it to Oklahoma, Oklahoma's got a six to 10% personal income tax. Yeah. And a, and a big reason Musk wanted to get the hell out of California is he was sick of paying the income tax there. Mm -hmm. And and so, exactly. I mean, you know, Oklahoma was never a serious consideration for Tesla. Probably not. No, I mean, I can't read his mind, but yeah. it was clear. Yeah, I that can't it was, either, but you know, just, it was clear that, I mean, they had already bought the land. They were ready to go as soon as they, as soon yeah. as they, you know, got the, got the tax break. So yeah, that was. And, and how long, um, rent do they normally if they get a, a if they use this program how long are they receiving these tax breaks because i know i think we mm -hmm. in san antonio here used it years back to to entice toyota to come mm -hmm. and they've been a good partner but you know yeah. i wonder how long are these attack you know you talk about it as an american and we're like can you imagine you move to a town and they pay you they incentivize you by saying you don't have to pay taxes for 10 years <laughs> out yeah. there uh, but they, they, these taxes go on and on that are the lack of them paying it for for how long of a period is it like 10 years or something it's 10 years yeah that's right it's 10 years and they basically abate the tax they, they abate the value of the property down to about 10 or 20 million dollars and usually these are you know hundreds of millions to billions of dollar projects right and Toyota's always excited cited as an example of the program working and maybe in that case it was a good a good use of of that right but that's a very rare rare case right and so if we're going to reform this program we need to see like okay what did work and just focus on that and get rid of the 90 plus right. percent that's not working right <laughs> you know i mean but again it, i think to us it comes down to the best the best economic development is is low taxes and low regulations and we've proven that in texas well you know it's, it's also in, in closing is so we saw in san antonio on the outskirts we had a halliburton baker hughes weatherford open up on the expansion of Eagle Ford. And when they mm -hmm. moved here, the city of San Antonio offered them nothing but, unfortunately, a sewer pipe. Um, and there were no incentives whatsoever. So mm -hmm. it does kind of seem as though it depends on, you know, what the company is, what they're supporting it, supported or, or not. What kind of virtue signal can you send, send right? You know? Yes. I mean, so yeah. there, it's not, it, it's basically if you're green or you're uh, tech savvy, we want you, if you're oil and gas, uh, probably not in our backyard kind of thing, but yet it's so important and they bring great jobs and, and high yeah. paying jobs. Uh, Brett, before we let you go, um, our listeners to join, I know you, you all also take contributions and you guys do an amazing job for conservatives and Texas, Texans alike. 
where can our members go to join, get involved, support y'all's organization? Yeah. And heck, just look at what y'all's mission is because y'all do a whole lot of good stuff on behalf of uh, Texas. Yeah, yeah we cover a wide range of policy issues, yeah, all the way from education to healthcare to uh, fiscal policy. Um, our, our, our foundation website is, Texas, is texaspolicy.com. We're a 501c3. Uh, and then our uh, Life Powers website is right behind me here, lifepower.org. Um, you can go there, sign up for our newsletters, um, get more information. Uh, we put out a lot of stuff on just about uh, any issue that, uh, that you want to get interested in. We have information on it. So great resources for the public. And if nothing else, our listeners can go and sign up for your free uh, digital email that you send out, your newsletter. I, I enjoy that. Right. Yeah, it's right there on lifepower.org. Keep you up to date with all the, all the things that are going on. Well, on behalf of David and myself, Brent, thank you for stopping back by and talking to us and getting us updated on what you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good fight. Until next time. And we'll probably ask you to come back on if you make any headway with any of them. And so until next time, when you come back, thank you for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brent. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.